like to invite you to go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning as we continue our, our journey through Nehemiah. Take note of the, the questions that are on the, the screen this morning as we uh, prepare to have our response time at the end. So take note of those, remember those, write them down. They'll be up frequently throughout the message so that you can stay that and answer the questions appropriately and ship as we do that. I hope that you all are, are, are doing well. And again, we're in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. Last week, we finished chapter 5, because now we're in chapter 6. And, and what we saw at the end of chapter 5 was Nehemiah himself breaking into the passage somewhat 12 years later to tell us a few things about himself, about the kind of leader that Nehemiah has been, not only through the building project, but the leader that Nehemiah uh, had been for the last 12 years. First, he tells us that he was a governor, and he was the kind of governor that was unlike other governors that came before him. He wasn't abusive. He didn't take advantage of the people. He didn't take use of the food allowances that were due to him, but instead uh, used his own wealth to, to pay for his, his, not only his own food, but for those who came uh, to, to be with him, over 150 people every day. Nehemiah was showing himself the kind of leader that as we knew he would be from the very beginning from Nehemiah chapter 1, that he was going to be sacrificial, generous, and of course, very faithful. He is the kind of leader that we would want to follow. He is the kind of leader that was a type of Christ, and we follow Christ. But now that we are getting into chapter 6, we're going back to the narrative, back into the, the story of the rebuilding of the walls and the gates and the, the doors around the city of Jerusalem, we were kind of since uh, in the middle of the a middle of the project, and since about chapter four, we've seen some some times that have been tumultuous for the people of God who have been rebuilding the wall outside of pressers and enemies that came inside pressers, right? People who wanted to conquer them, subjugate them for their own personal gain. But now that these walls are being rebuilt, they're showing a shared identity as the people of God. And that's where we are this morning. So if you would, join me as we read, start reading in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Now when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, or Arab, had the, <laughs> and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Samballot and Geshem said, sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together of Hakephirim in the plain of Ono but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great 
and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, same ballot for the with an open letter in his hand. It was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you, the Jews, intend to rebel. Holding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you, Jerusalem, the king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come and let us take together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to be, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hand will drop from the work. And it but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man sh should as such? Should I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. I understood all that God had sent him, had not sent him. But he had pronounced, he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat, Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noidia and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. The three stooges are back. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These oppressors, these accusers, the enemies of the Jews. We've talked about weeks as we've gone through Nehemiah about these enemies of God and how the enemies tend to always show up when the people of God are being obedient to the word of God. Very few times in scriptures, in the scripture, where there's truly peace for the people of God. 
there is always something or someone that comes up against them. Even in the most successful reign of the king of Israel, King David, when a righteous king ruled, a man after God's own heart, all the enemies of God have been put down by this king. Even then, there was still opposition. Opposition that arose from inside the king himself. The corruption of his own heart that led him to sin and the consequences of that sin that rolled through his family. The history has the church only lived relatively in little peace. Persecution from kings emperors, other religions, dare I say, popes, false teaching that constantly is wanting to worm its way into the body of Christ and do its damage. False teaching has its many ways of infiltrating the church. We have seen throughout the centuries, throughout the years, many denominations and churches to be pulled away to the allure of modernism and secular philosophies, methodology, cultural acceptance of sin, a total rejection of orthodox biblical Christianity for something other than Christianity, but yet they call themselves Christian. Oreo cookies are still Oreo cookies. Hydrox and cream are not. You can get that illustration when you try it. We, however, have had relatively peaceful time without widespread persecution or outside or for that matter, even much internal strife. There's been some. And we spoke a few weeks ago about how we are to know our enemies. Nehemiah knew his enemies. He used that term very specifically. Enemies. He used it this morning in verse 1. And we talked about how you should know your enemies and how enemies are still intending to take and destroy the church and the kingdom of God. From the very beginning, the seed of the serpent has been trying to kill the seed of the woman. We people should not be confused by this. We should not be deceived by this or be surprised by this reality. There is truly a real enemy that is at work in this world to crush and to subvert the people of God and the church of God. We know that there is an evil one, Satan, who is like a roaring around those whom he would devour. We know that he is known as the accuser who would not only tempt us to sin, but also accuse us in our sin to fear and to be paralyzed with guilt in our fear. Ephesians 6 tells us, 11 and 12, says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The real enemy who has real devastating schemes and tactics 
not wrestle against blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We talked about how there's evil systems and philosophies and ideologies, these antichrists, according to 1 John, that seek to destroy human flourishing, suppress common grace. We talked about that last week. The church, to destroy the church and the work of the gospel and the kingdom of God. But we have a heavenly Father to whom we can depend and rely on for all things. And in all situations, we can endure and persevere through him. We lean not on our own understanding that we trust in the Lord. And if we are in Christ, then we know without a doubt assurance that in Christ he will keep us and he will hold us and preserve us. Our passage this morning shows us once again how great opposition comes against the people of God. Opposition and accusation and threat, and calling, betrayal, to subvert the work and the kingdom of God. But I also think that in this passage it's showing us something even more glorious than the tactics of the enemy. That it's showing us how we are to respond to these things, to the face of threats, the face of intimidation. I think this is a, a passage and a lesson that we all need. I think it's is a reminder for us and training for these days and for these days to come. And in verses 1 through 9, we see our first response by Nehemiah to the opposition. In verse 1, it says, these three guys again, they come against them again. And at this time, we get a little bit more detail that the walls are done. The walls are, are, almost, are, are completely done, except for the, the gates and the doors that are being put up now between the breaches that are still left in the wall. This did not sit well with the enemies, with the opposition. It didn't sit well with them. And they devised this, this plan together that let's have a meeting with Nehemiah. We'll have a summit at Ono with Nehemiah. They give an invitation too. And it seems like a friendly invitation. And maybe this time they they actually want to make peace. Maybe they've come to terms with the wall and the, the Jews moving into the region and, and they come to terms that, that Nehemiah was actually sent by the, by the king himself. And maybe they, they want to start working together on peace and trade and life to be done well together. 
Is Nehemiah just being paranoid with his reply to their invitation? I'm working. We're all working here. Nothing up there is more important to stop me and to stop us from doing what we are doing. And I want to stop the moment, and I want us to hear something that Nehemiah says in that reply uh, to about working on the walls. Did you notice that he calls it a great work? He calls it a great work, and I don't think he's calling it a great work because there's a lot to do. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He had one of the most important and the most trustworthy jobs in the whole kingdom. He would become the governor of Persia, which was a great honor. To the world, that is a great work. But building walls around Jerusalem, Nehemiah says, this is a great work. The enemies say the walls are stupid and they're not worth the trouble that you have been facing, Nehemiah, so stop. But Nehemiah says it's great. And here's why this is important. The work they were doing in Jerusalem was not great because the world thought it was great. The work was great because it was about God's name and his glory among his people. In Jerusalem. The work we do as the church and Christ and the Word of God to share the gospel, to spread the kingdom of God, is also a great work because it's not about us, but it's about the glory of God. Let us not ever think that anyone in this world is ever going to admire honor or appreciate what we do on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, on Thursday nights, and all the other times that we gather together. When you share the gospel with a lost friend or family member or someone you meet outside or on the campus at a restaurant, the world will never admire that. They will never honor that. But in the eyes of the Lord, it is a great work. What we do is a great work. Don't let anyone ever tell you different. That's just a side note, but that will preach. So why does Nehemiah not want to go to the summit of Ono? Because he knows that they will do him harm. That is a nice way to say that they wanted to kill him and to use him and to make him as an example to anyone who would cross them and not listen to them. So four times they invited him to the summit and he says, no, not going. And I want to ask you, are you realistic about your enemies and their intentions? We talked about our enemy and the devil, and Satan, whose intentions is to crush us, to kill us, to subvert the work of God. He hates us. Do you know what your enemy is really trying to do? 
Do you know that Satan is really your enemy? Do you know that the temptation to sin you face that is so hard to resist is put there by those who intend to do you harm? Here are enemies that are truly wanting to tempt Nehemiah and to do Nehemiah harm. But Nehemiah understands his enemies. That they are not making a peace offering. He knows who he is dealing with. Again, verse 1, he calls them our enemies. Not our friends next door. Not our buddies who live up the streets. But our enemies. Their worldview and culture directly opposes the worldview of the people of God. And Nehemiah stands on the truth and the principle of right doctrine, upon God's law and God's morals. And guess what that does when you do that? Well, it made him look like to the world that he is a xenophobic, intolerant, and bigoted. For us today to stand on truth, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to believe the scriptures are inerrant, to be able to worship freely, and that the Bible actually shapes our morals and our ethics on such things such as homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, freedom, sexuality, and a host of other things, then we too are going to be labeled and ostracized. And if you do not conform or bow, you will be labeled. Nehemiah is realistic about his enemies and their intentions. And brothers and sisters, so should we. When we look at verse 5, the tactics of these enemies shift. Because now, Samballot sends a fifth letter, an open letter. Look at it there, I believe it's in verse 6. He first accuses Nehemiah of sedition and rebellion against the king. And then he accuses Nehemiah of wanting to become the king. And lastly, he accuses Nehemiah of, of hiring and set up, setting up prophets all around the city that will manipulate the people to believing that this is God's plan, that Nehemiah would become their king. And then to top it all off, Samballot threatens him in a rhythmic kind of way. We are going to tell the king. Unless, listen, unless you take counsel with us. Which means, if you do not bend to our way of thinking, if you do not to our worldview, we are going to call the woke police.
accusations, name-calling, intimidation, and threats. Do we not see that same playbook? Amen. The same playbook. And they write, this is an open letter. This is a tweet for all the world to see. From Sambalat to Nehemiah. That you're going to rebel against the king. That you're deceiving your people. And we're going to tell the king. This is to intimidate them. To slander Nehemiah, his intentions, his example, and his leadership. Have you ever been slandered? Has someone ever intentionally spread rumors about you in order to destroy you, your character, your intent, so that they would get their way at your expense? It's not fun. It's not a good place. This is the place that Nehemiah is in. But Nehemiah answers straight away to the rumors in verse 8. No such thing as you have said has been done, for you are inventing them. I love that. You're inventing them out of your own mind. He wasn't planning a rebellion. He wasn't trying to make himself a king, nor did he want to be a king, or was he finding prophets to prophesy to make him a king? He doesn't even give them a time of day to such crazy accusations. Brothers and sisters, nor should we. This tactic of accusations, name-calling, Enabling, intimidation, and threats is the same tactics, the same playbook, and it's still going to be used today. So don't be surprised. We are going to be called homophobic. But guess what? We know we're not. We're going to be called transphobic. But we are not. There's nothing that we are afraid of. We are going to be called intolerant. We are going to be called bigoted. But we know we are not. You're going to be called backwards. You are on the wrong side of history, you racists. But we know we are not. You're going to be called misogynist. You're going to be called unloving. And on and on and on. And all the other words that they can make up. But it's not true. I know that I am a sinner. And I know firsthand very well, very well, that I have not loved everyone in a way that honors Christ in every situation. But I know the gospel. And I know that to strive for holiness that honors Christ, then I'm still called to love my enemies. To do good to all men, even those who contrary live to the scripture, to pray for them and help them in ways that I can. But most importantly, I am to love them first by not compromising the truth or hiding from them and to give them the gospel and plea for their repentance. And for them to trust in Christ as their Savior, as I. Verse 9 tells us the whole point of their intimidation is fear. 
fear. Fear is the weapon used to put you in your place. To live in fear for your job, to live in fear for your reputation, your success, and even your safety. The fear is put there to put you in your place. It's all about fear. It's why the accuser accuses. Because if you live in fear, then you are paralyzed. Fear to not finishing the great work that has been set before us. That's a whole lot of bad news stuff, but there's some good things in it. But how does Nehemiah respond? He, he responds to them by telling them very directly, you're inventing it out of your own mind. But Nehemiah is also, again, a great example, as Christ is our great example in how we should respond. That though he was oppressed and he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth like a lamb he was led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Without violence, without retaliation, without condescending remarks, without revenge, but with patience, careful denial, precise wielding of the sword of truth, the gospel, and most importantly, as Nehemiah prayed, a firm dependence upon the Lord. Nehemiah prayed, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Doesn't this prayer, as simple as it is, doesn't it sound so much of the Psalms? Many Psalms. Psalm 18.1, I love you, O oh Lord, my strength. Psalm 28, 7 through 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. And I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song I give. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and help, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 68, 35, awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And lastly, Psalm 118, 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And this is only like five of like 50 in the Psalms. The Bible is filled with this prayer of strength. In the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 10, so right before the Ephesians passage that we read earlier, 6, 10, finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. He gives us strength. How do we endure? How do we face the enemy? By his strength. How do we live faithfully when under threat and intimidation and tempted to fear? 
in the strength of his might, in the strength of our God. Let us continually pray, Lord, give us strength. Pray for it. Ask for it. Look to him, and he will answer that prayer. And second, when facing fears and threats and intimidation, let us respond with a prayer of faith. In verses 10 through 13, we do not hear Nehemiah explicitly pray. However, we do see him faithfully respond. In the first part of our passage, we saw how the, the enemies were attempting to the work of God by, by intimidating and bring great fear upon them to come straight after Nehemiah and kill him. It was very much an overt public operation to take him out. But now what we see in 10 through 13 is the tactics go covert. It's an inside job. In verse 10 it says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, Son of Deliah, son of that guy, who was confined to his home. So Nehemiah goes to this prophet. His name is Shemaiah. And we don't know why he was confined to his home. But I think it's pretty safe to say that Nehemiah thought that this prophet was his friend. He was friends with this prophet. And he goes to his home because this prophet has something to tell Nehemiah. He says, let us meet together in the house of God in the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So now there's this assassination that's coming. And according to Shemaiah, the only way to save his life is to join him and go hiding out in the temple. Pretty good plan. Let's go to the temple. But what does Nehemiah say in verse 11? Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God has not sent him, but he has pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. How did Nehemiah know that this prophet was actually not sent by God? Again, presumably he went to Shemaiah because he believed him to be a prophet and his friend. But now Nehemiah doesn't think that. How did he come to the understanding and see that God had not sent him? Now, this is a very important part. Because so many Christians today want to have discernment. And they, they want to have wisdom. And they earnestly desire to live faithfully in this world. And that's good. It's a good desire. However... The means by which they have sought out this discernment 
have been in ways of asking and talking and speaking to people who have truly duped them. Where now they, they look for signs and wonders. They trust feelings, advice from counselors, and even tingles from what they call the Holy Spirit. But how did Nehemiah understand and discern this? Nehemiah, as we already know, knew the scriptures. He knew that even in the rebuilt temple, in the Pentateuch, it says that only priests can go into the temple. And even then, it was very specific times that these priests could go into the temple. Not prophets, not wall builders, not governors. And he says, I'm not running away from these people. Speaks of his courage and who he trusts. And he says, how can I enter the temple and live? Meaning, if I take one step into that temple, I'm dead. Not by the hands of men, but by the holiness of God. He looks to the word. Numbers 18.7, this very thing to, to Aaron, that no outsider should come near the temple or inside for them, the tabernacle, or they would be put to death. When it comes to this, to Nehemiah, and should be to us in scriptures, is that when it comes to the word of God, there never should be yeah buts. For Nehemiah, there was no feelings involved. He wasn't looking for miracles. He wasn't laying fleeces, only trusting the scriptures. And that's how he knew verse 13, that Shemaiah was hired. Hired for the very point that he should be afraid and sin to give him a bad name and taunt him. Shemaiah was a false prophet. How do you know a person is a false prophet? Test them according to the word of God. Again, the enemy is deceptive, and deception is the weapon that he wields very skillfully. But we have been given the sword of the Spirit to know how to wield it wisely. Do you want to know the will of God? Then know the Bible. Revealed it to us and with, for everything pertaining to life and godliness. His will to us in this world is in his word. You want to know how to discern whether or not someone is or isn't in line with the will of God when they claim to reveal the will of God? Evaluate their claims by the scriptures. And then believe the Bible only. There are a lot of morons out there who for themselves are building their own kingdoms. And they're using Christianity and weak Christians as the means to achieve their popularity and their influence. They're talented. They quote scriptures a lot. They dress hip. They write slick songs. 
They write books. They have podcasts and YouTube channels. But brothers and sisters, we have the sword of the Word of God. And so we pray that the Lord would give us faith to be faithful when such covert attacks come upon us and that we would know how to wield the Word of God faithfully and discernibly in this world today. And lastly, I want us to pray that the Lord would give us justice. After Nehemiah faced the threat on his life, they came after him publicly with this insidious accusations and threats to intimidate them. Nehemiah held the line, praying for the Lord to strengthen them. And then when he was betrayed by one of their own prophets, who was bought off by Tobiah and Sambalat, Nehemiah remained faithful and wise, discerning the evil with the word of God. To say that Nehemiah faced some personal attacks at this time is an understatement. So when we read verse 14, let's keep that in context. He prays. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadia and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Here is another imprecatory prayer from Nehemiah. But is he wrong in this way? I want to answer that question by saying, perhaps. However, we need to understand Nehemiah is angry. We need to understand that Nehemiah is upset and has been wronged. And people have actually literally wanted to kill him. So understandably, in the moment, he would pray this. And we also remember that God's word is inerrant. And these prayers are in the Bible for a reason, for us. I have certainly been wronged. I have been slandered. And I knew that there was plots to come against me. And I admit I have prayed prayers like this about those people. Not that God would kill them, but that God would frustrate their plans. That he would turn around their plan on their heads so that they would stop this evil and that they would repent of their sins and trust Christ. You see, praying for justice like how Nehemiah does, is that Nehemiah wants these things remembered because he believes that God will settle the accounts. He believes that only God is truly just. And in God will there ever truly be true justice. He will judge and he will do justice. And it's God's justice that Nehemiah wants. It is the Lord who will right all wrongs. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So is it wrong to pray 
and ask God for his justice and his, and his righteous judgment in his time. Well, if a terrorist organization took over a whole town or a shopping center and they began to indiscriminately kill people, and as we heard about this news, as this situation is happening, would we not pray during that time, Lord, take them out? Brothers and sisters, prayers like this are in the Bible for a reason. Because we can pray them, and we should pray for the Lord to give justice, but also we must pray like our Savior prayed, forgive them, for they know not what they do. However God answers this prayer, is he not sovereign to give mercy on whom he would give mercy and his righteous judgment on those whom he gives righteous judgment? Lord, give us justice is very much a righteous prayer. But it is to be one that is firmly trusted in a sovereign king. And we keep in mind the gospel, remembering that at one time, all of us were once enemies of God. And yet it was justice that fell upon his son that was due to us. I want to close this morning's message looking back at the text for just a moment. When we look back at verses 6 and 7 and we see the accusations by the three stooges accusing Nehemiah that they wanted to become a king and was setting up prophets to declare that he was going to become king. They said there's a king in Judah. There were rumors and Nehemiah addressed those rumors. But what they didn't know was that there was an appearance of some truth in those rumors. Nehemiah wasn't setting himself up to be king, but Nehemiah and God's people had very much a messianic hope. He was looking for someone that would come to be their king. That would come in the, the line of David. And certainly the prophets would have been telling of the king that would come. And if the king had come, celebrated this king. Because this king that they know, according to Psalm 110, would crush and trample his enemies his feet. What they were anticipating has become our reality because the king has truly come. His name is Jesus Christ. And he came as a humble king who on that Palm Sunday came riding in on a colt through the city walls and the gates that Nehemiah was building. He was a king would be for sacrifice, who would come to crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy of all of our fears, 
death and suffering of the wrath of God because of our sin. Brothers and sisters, our King has come, and He is our strength, and He will give us faith, and He will give us justice in His time. Because one day, He will come again, and He will return again, not riding on a colt, but on a white horse, He who is called Faithful and True. His eyes will be like fire, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Jesus will return as a conquering king. But until then, let us pray. Lord, give us strength. Lord, give us faith. And Lord, give us justice so that we would endure and we would persevere to the end. And so that we may continue seeing the words of Martin Luther wrote many years ago. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we pray, O oh God, that you would use it to strengthen us, use it to point us to Christ, to delight and enjoy Christ. Father, would you teach us what it means to have strength in you and in faith? Lord, would you help us to look to you in these times of intimidation, accusation, and difficulty, that we would look to you for our strength, look to you for our faith, look to you for our justice, and we can be almost completely hands-off, just wielding the, the truth, but look to you. Father, use this time of response to encourage your people into greater faithfulness as we look to you. In Christ's name, amen.